Hello, and welcome to Orwellian, a charming bookshop in mid-1930s Hampstead. I am one of the proprietors, Lewis, and I'm here with my co-proprietor, Simon. Please feel free to browse our shelves. We do mainly second-hand books. We also have a lending library. If you need any help, please just ask our assistant. His name is Eric, although sometimes he calls himself George. It's a bit confusing. Welcome, everyone. That was a bit of a flight of whimsy on my part. How did you feel about that, Simon? I, uh, you took me by surprise, Lewis. Like, that was your little gimmick for the day. I enjoyed it. That was good. As you might have guessed, everyone, from my opening, we're talking about one of George Orwell's most famous essays today. Certainly one of his funniest, in our opinion. Bookshop Memories, which was published in Fortnightly in November 1936. But before we start, Simon, what have you been up to? I have been drinking a lot this week. What's new? The, the, the weather's really started to get hot, and there's something about hot weather that makes me feel like I have to drink a bit more to cool myself down. Tonight we've been drinking gin tonics. Um, the, the listeners may have worked yes, this out. Yes, they may be able to hear. But for each week we kind of, what we do is we try and eat and drink upon a theme according to the podcast. But we couldn't think of anything to connect with books, so we just got some gin. Yeah, we're just drinking gin tonic. But um, in the Kipling podcast, we, we mentioned this, we had curry and... IPA. IPA. We're going to do a, a, a Spanish-based podcast soon, and we're going to make some tapas and drink... Oh, should I make a sangria? Oh, yes. Do you still want nice. me to bring the Jerez? Definitely bring the Jerez, but a sangria would be nice as well, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah, I don't know why we chose gin tonics today, but... Um, I think we just felt like it. It's getting very muggy here in Japan now. Um, the rainy season has started early, and Simon and I are living out our fantasies as gentlemen sitting on the veranda. But she couldn't come. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just drinking uh, gin tonics and stuff. So, uh, as I mentioned, we're talking about the Orwell essay, Bookshop Memories, which... Um, anyone who's listened to the As We Please podcast um, will maybe remember that Bookshop Memories was actually the first Orwell work I ever read. I think this was your first time encountering this essay, wasn't it, Simon? It was, and I, re I mentioned to you when we were eating dinner before, I really enjoyed it. It's hilarious. Honestly, if ever a stereotype of George Orwell had to be taken out of the context, it was this. It's the, one of the funniest essays I've ever read. I mean, it's, it's subtle humour, but it's hilarious. And people have to understand, Orwell wasn't this dark, gloomy, dystopian author. He was also a very witty man who just very enjoyed, dry. very dry, enjoyed observing life. So I thought maybe we, before we get into discussing the essay, we can maybe just give it a bit of background. Mm. Um, Orwell, after he left the Imperial, the Indian Imperial Police and came back to Britain, um, he spent a while living rough. That was documented in Down and Out in Paris and London. He spent a, some time living with his parents. He was also a teacher in various different schools. At that time, uh, teaching was kind of the last refuge of the Down and Out public schoolboy as anyone who's read Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall will recognise. But in the period 1934 to January 1936, 
uh, Orwell was working in a bookshop and uh, the bookshop was called Book Lover's Corner. Did you look into this, Simon? I didn't, but do you know what we should have drunk tonight? What? Tequila Mockingbird. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm I'm, going to have to spend the next few minutes thinking of another book-based drink. Uh, I'll come back to that. So he was working in this uh, shop called Book Lover's Corner in Hampstead in London. It was a second-hand bookshop. We're going to hear some more details about that. Got to be careful that. around lovers' corners in Hampstead. <laughs> yes, especially on the heath. But uh, it was a second-hand bookshop, and it was run by a couple of very interesting people. It was run by a husband and wife called Francis and Mufanwi Restrup. And Francis Westrup had been a conscientious objector during the Great War, Mafanwi had been a suffragette, so they were both pretty kind of politically active and clued up. And as well as being Orwell's employers, they were his landlord and landlady because Orwell lived above the shop at that time. There's actually quite a funny story. Um, You should never preface any story with this is a funny story, (laughs) should you, but never mind. Um, So there's there's a story about how when Orwell first went to work at the bookshop, Um, Mifanwi Westrop showed him to his room and said, they were very obliging landlords, and Mifanwi Westrop said to him, is there anything you need? Meaning just, you know, like extra towels or some soap or a toothbrush or something. And Orwell, who was already, you know, about 30, 31, um, turned to her and said, all I desire is freedom. And she immediately I said... I call bullshit. Well, no, she immediately said to him, oh, so you want to have women here all night? And Orwell, that wasn't what he meant at all. And apparently he got very flustered and said, oh, no, that's not what I meant at all. And uh, that was his introduction to living above the bookshop. <laughs> How much do you believe these quotes? Well, of course, this is something I think Mifanwi Westrup said years later. But Do, do you think... Oscar Wilde, when he entered America for the first time, and they said to him, do you have anything to declare? Nothing but my genius. I don't know. Bullshit. What pretentious. Do you know what I mean? I'd have kicked him out. Well, that's why I thought, you know, it's (laughs) funny to think that Orwell, you know, at the age of like 31, would say something you'd expect maybe like a 17-year-old to say. Yeah, snotty 17-year-old who's just read Das Kapital. But I do actually, I can imagine... um, Mufan we were Strop saying, oh, so you want women here all night, and Orwell getting a bit flustered over that. I think that, <laughs> that is something I can imagine. Can I tell you, Simon, just before we go on, would you like to know about Orwell's routine while he was working at the bookshop? I have an idea. Oh, tell us, tell us. I, I, have a, I, I read that it, he, he um, time-shared with another guy. Yes, a guy who I think he was... Uh, Historian, yes, a famous historian. A, a Jewish refugee. From Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. And um, so, yes, yeah, so I think Orwell had the afternoon shift, so he could write in the morning mm. and party at night, basically. Well, not just party, but he, he was working part-time in order to write. He had this job in order to be a writer. And I have it here. It's in um, George Orwell's Collected Letters. This is a letter written to Brenda Salkeld, 16th of February 1935. 
My timetable is as follows. 7am, get up, dress, etc. Cook and eat breakfast. Had to cook breakfast. I wonder what he was eating. Good old fry up, do you think? I reckon. Well, I reckon a poached egg mm. on toast. Probably. 8.45, go down and open the shop. And I am usually kept there till about 9.45, so only an hour in the morning. Then come home, do out my room, light the fire, etc. 10.30am to 1pm, I do some writing. 1pm, get lunch and eat it. 2pm to 6.30pm, I am at the shop. Then I come home, get my supper, do the washing up. And after that, sometimes do about an hour's work. So that was Orwell's uh, schedule while he was working at Book Lovers Corner. Sounds pretty good. In 20 seconds, how would you describe your daily schedule? Get up, work from nine till half five and do some exercise, eat, read something, sleep. Very good. I get up, make a smoothie for breakfast, read all morning, taking notes, have lunch, write all afternoon, dinner, mark exams, watch Netflix. Sleep. You gave me a very haunted look when you said mark exams. Oh, there. God, yeah, tell me about it. What did you think of as being the themes in this essay, Simon? So the themes, the, the, should I mention a the theme that I really liked? Yes. The theme that really struck me was how people pretend to be cultured. Yes. Possibly even intellectual. Especially in an environment where they figure they can't be found out. Yet really, they're not at all. What do you think about that? Yes, I quite agree with you. It doesn't you. sound snobbish, that, does it? No. Uh, and that ties into what Orwell writes about how people don't seem to read the classics anymore. There's a lot of, I have to say, there's a lot of very kind of superior posturing from yeah. Orwell in this essay. We mentioned before, he's a bookworm. Yeah. He's so well read, read that he, he he seems to really look down upon those of us who really who merely read a couple of books a year as opposed to a book a day. One of the themes I picked out, which is kind of similar to what you've brought up there, is books and money. Um, did the you... clinking ice isn't too much, is it? No, no. Sounds like we're filming or recording this in an igloo. <laughs> a melting igloo. A melting that, igloo. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I picked up on was books and money. And did you think that as well as people pretending to be more cultured than they are, another theme was pretending to be cultured and also pretending to have more money than they yeah. actually Sorry, have. I should have mentioned those together, but exactly that. Guilty... How about you? I've certainly... Well, you're married. You don't have to pretend anything. No, I, uh, <laughs> I just accept my life for what it is now. But, um, Orwell mentions uh, what he calls paranoiac customers. What, what, what would be the um, modern term for paranoiac, Simon? What do you think? Other than annoying. Hmm. Um, That's what I thought immediately. Eccentrically annoying. Yes, he mentions, quoting Orwell here, excellent everyman edition, page 50, many of the people who came to us in the bookshop were of the kind who would be a nuisance anywhere, but have special opportunities in a bookshop. And then he writes about uh, the decayed person smelling of old <laughs> bread crusts who comes in every day, 
sometimes several times a day, and tries to sell you worthless books. The other is the person who orders large quantities of books for which he has not the smallest intention of paying. <laughs> this really put me in mind of a lot of... I, I, I think I mentioned recently I've been reading Down and Out in Paris and London, which is Orwell's uh, chronicle of living amongst the, the underclass. And whereas Down and Out in Paris and London is about the underclass, the people who have slipped through the cracks of society, I kind of feel that these decayed people in these, for want of a better term, weirdos who hang around bookshops, they're, they're, they're just on the margins of respectability, aren't they? They are, and it reminds me of myself. Shall I tell you a, a quick anecdote? Please do. I've never flown business class, but once when I, I flew from London to Tokyo and I paid for business class lounge access at Doha Airport in Qatar because I had an eight-hour layover. And as you know, I'm afraid of flying, so I like to be a little Oliver Twist when I'm flying. So lounge access gave me access to a free bar. And I'm sitting at the bar in this lounge and I'm dressed quite respectably. And a Middle Eastern gentleman pulls up a stall next to me and we get chatting. And He said, what do you do? And I don't know why I did this, but I just thought, sitting in a business lounge, I don't want to tell him I'm a researcher. So I lied. I said, oh, I, you know, business, the market. <laughs> and he said, oh, what, what are you doing on the market? And I said, oh, God, ETFs, you know, hedge funds. He said, oh, great, great, great. And I don't know why I did it. I think... At that moment, I didn't consider myself worthy or respectful enough for the business class lounge, so I lied. Do you think in the case of the bookshop Orwell was, write, was writing about, uh, that people felt that being in a bookshop and talking about books gave them a certain amount of respectability, in the same way that you being in the business lounge gave you a certain amount of respectability that you had yeah. to live up to? I, I've always found throughout my time that University is no measure of intelligence. It's, it's definitely not a measure of intellect, is it? We know that. We both know people who didn't go to university and they're a hell of a lot smarter than we are, and we have been to university. But I've often found people who didn't go to university, especially in my generation, where it's kind of a done thing, very um, defensive about it. And they will, at any given opportunity, play up their cultural knowledge if that's a kind of allegorical meaning to it. Another theme that I picked up which kind of relates to this is just the strangeness of people and the strangeness of the general public. Um, I think you've had more part-time jobs than me, Simon. Have you ever had like a kind of front-facing job where you, you came into contact with odd people? I have. When I was a student, I, I was working part-time at a museum in London like visitor services. Can v I, Victorian Albert Museum. Can I just ask, is, is the Victorian Albert and is the Victorian Albert Museum fee charging? No. Because I think it might it might make a difference if the institution you're working for is difference. free to enter. Every single day upon opening, there was a man dressed very well with a bow tie, a bowler hat, round glasses, and had an umbrella. No matter the month, the day, the weather. And he would walk in, approach the visitor, visitor services desk and ask, what exhibitions do we have on? And we would say, same as yesterday. And then he would walk around the museum 
and 30 minutes later go, bloody good that was, good work, and walk out. I, I was there for two years, 730 times. He counted. <laughs> he did it, exactly the same. Absolute bloody lunatic. Did you ever find out who he was or why he was doing no, this? No, nobody, nobody knew, but it's he was well-spoken, well-dressed. And it was a different suit. wasn't the same suit. wasn't the same bow tie. I mean, it sounds almost, if you were being um, charitable, it sounds almost as if it was just performance art. But it sounds, you know, Not for that many days. Have, have you ever, ever come across anything like that? Well, I haven't had as many what you would call front-facing jobs as you. I worked in a warehouse, uh, which wasn't... I, I know about your back-facing part-time job. <laughs> I, I don't do that anymore. I'm a podcaster now. <laughs> but uh, I certainly, you know, you do come across odd people and characters. I've come across that sort of thing more through stories from my brother who worked for worked in a bookshop and in a music shop and he would tell you about these very strange people who came in every day never bought anything but were always asking very detailed questions about the stock about um obscure if it was the music shop uh, getting into conversations about obscure composers or if it was a bookshop asking if you had well, actually, um, something Orwell writes here. The dear old lady who wants a book for an invalid. A very common demand, that. And the other dear old lady, this is the one that my brother really related to. The other dear old lady who read such a nice book <laughs> in 1897 book. and wonders whether you can find her a copy. Unfortunately, she doesn't remember the title or the author's name or what the book was about, but she does remember that it had a red cover. <laughs> and my brother told me that exactly the same kind of people came into his bookshop, you know, 70, 80 years after Orwell published this essay. I love that vagueness. How many times have you had it when you've been speaking to a guy, perhaps here in Japan, he's going, where are you from? Ah, uh, Edinburgh or London. Oh, do you know Jason? He's from London. <laughs> well, no, I don't bloody know Jason. But I love it. I love vagueness. Can I read out to you one of my favourite quotes right. from the essay? Because it's really hit home with me. And he says, um, In a town like London, where his bookshop is, there are always plenty of not quite certifiable lunatics walking the streets, and they tend to gravitate towards bookshops. Because a bookshop is one of the few places where you can hang about for a long time without spending any money. Now, in my 20s, I lived in Madrid, and I had no money. And there was a bookshop called FNAC, and I went there for about three hours a day. And they had this little reading area where you could, you know, read the snippets. Well, I read the book. Mm. I would sit there for three hours a day, reading books after book after book. And also, when I was a student in London, uh, next to UCL, there's a bookshop called Scoob. Lovely little bookshop down in the basement. You'd love it, Lewis. Like dust everywhere. I mean, and they had stalls in between each section where you could just sit on the stall and dust dust off the book and read it. And the hours I spent in there, I don't think I ever bought anything there. But they knew my name. <laughs> it's a similarity, isn't it, between a, a bookshop and a library? They're both places where people who are kind of slightly out of elbow go to uh, find a bit of peace and a bit of calm. And... But don't you find libraries are full of shh? Sorry. 
But they're, they're healthy places. They're good for circulation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, all these puns, I think I've got to stamp them out. <laughs> I'm going to check out your puns later on. You're, you're off your trolley, you uh, <laughs> library trolley. Oh, dear. Did you meet your wife in the library? I did. did, did you, and did you ask her if you could take her out? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we apologise, listeners. We'll, we'll stop. We, no, we, we apologise, but we won't stop. <laughs> we'll never stop. You'll pry the puns from our cold, so, dead hands. When are you taking your wife back? <laughs> <laughs> um, when I get a fine. <laughs> Another theme I picked up on in this, Simon, was um, expectation versus reality. Great um, expectations. Yes. Mentions um, Dickens, is not What did you think about this, you know, the image of the bookshop? Orwell writes, you know, a, you imagine a bookshop is a kind of paradise where charming old gentlemen browse eternally. Uh, but what it really is, is cold, a cold place full of weirdos and dead blue bottle flies. He also mentions how he lost his lo love of books yes. by working in a bookshop. And as I've already mentioned on the podcast, I worked in a museum and I'm a history... I'm a history lunatic. You lose your love of cuneiform tablets. I, I started to hate museums because when you see the real mechanics behind the scenes, it's very depressing. All romanticism is quickly erased. And I'm starting to get that love back, but I, I completely sympathised with him. I, I lost my love for the material artefacts of history. Do you think this makes a wider point about the difference between business and pleasure? Because one of the eternal themes in Orwell is pleasure, isn't it? Yeah. The good, bad book, um, enjoying going to the pub, yeah. the pleasures of spring. Nature, yeah. Um, um, what do you think this essay says about the, the pleasure of books versus the business of books? Do not mix business with pleasure. pleasure. That's what he's saying, and never is it more apt. It really is true. Whenever... So we were joking earlier on, before we started recording, about how we would accept any form of sponsorship on this podcast, you know. Cigarette companies, <laughs> gambling companies, well, pharmaceuticals... Mean, we were joking, yeah. but in absolute truth, without meaning to sound like we're martyrs, I don't think we ever would, would we? Because that would be commodifying what's become a real pleasure for us. Although Fuller's Brewery is still open to authors. <laughs> True. And the people who make Drum Beauty. And Gordon's. This is bloody good. This yes. Drink Gordon's gin. It's really nice, but only if you're over 18. You ever thought about being a jingle writer? It really rolls off the tongue. I thought it would be... <laughs> Drink Gordon's gin. It's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> but have you ever looked at like... Especially with ice. If you have lice. <laughs> Next to some mice. <laughs> um, but... Uh, oh, you are enticing me. Have you ever looked at... This is going off on a tangent, but have you ever looked at like old Victorian adverts and you realise that in the Victorian era, it seems all advertisers had to do was say, you know, Gordon's Gin, it's the best. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it really has evolved, hasn't it? It was like, Smith's Cigarettes, great. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a big thumb. <laughs> yeah, things have moved on, haven't they? Another um, 
theme I picked up on in this essay was, uh, I mean, we were talking about expectation versus reality. Again, it's going back to all these paranoiacs, as Orwell calls them, coming into the shop. You expect the people who come into a bookshop to be cultured and literary and middle class, but a lot of them are, as we mentioned before, kind of slightly down at heel, strange people, aren't they? So what, what do you think attracts the strange to the bookshops and what does it say about us? Again, as Orwell points out, it's a place you can hang around and it's a place where you can present yourself in a certain way. I mean, don't you feel when you go to a bookshop, you are a bit self-aware of which parts of the bookshop you're hanging so around? So true, isn't it? I'm always very aware, like when I'm browsing the classics shelves, I think, oh, people are looking at me and thinking, there's a man who reads Dickens. I hate it when I get caught in the woman's health section. <laughs> what are you doing there? <laughs> no, it's so true. Trying to find a cure for your problem. <laughs> When I, if I am buying a book on philosophy or something, when I'm stood there, I, I do, everyone can see I'm here, right? Everyone's looking. <laughs> let's, Simon, let's talk a bit about, again, another part of expectation versus reality is when he writes about the books you would expect people to read and the books that people actually read. So in this particular bookshop, there was a lending library, and this was very new to me. I'd actually never heard of a second-hand bookshop with its own lending library. I don't think this happens anymore. I, it doesn't happen anymore, because... Um, As Orwell points out, people just steal the books. Yeah, and he said it, but it still made economic sense to have it, didn't it? They still made more money. Because you attracted customers. Because you attracted customers, rather than the ones they lost. But there's this great quote... Um, it is therefore worth noting that all the authors in our library, of all the authors in our library, the one who went out the best was Priestley, Hemingway, Walpole, Woodhouse. No, Ethel M. Dell, with Warwick Deeping a good second, and Geoffrey Farnell, I should say, third. Now, Simon, I would call myself a bookish person. I have never heard of Ethel M. Dell, Warwick Deeping, or Geoffrey Farnell. Well, as Orwell goes on to mention... Why wouldn't you have heard of Dell? Because he wrote books for? Women. There you go. Did you find this part to be slightly unpalatable? Because, <laughs> I mean, Orwell's writing about the difference between the kind of books men read and the kind of books women read. And he writes, roughly speaking, what one might call the average novel, the ordinary good-bad, there's good-bad again, Goldsworthy and water stuff, which is the norm of the English novel, seems to exist only for women. Men read either the novels it is possible to respect or detective stories. I think that hasn't aged well. What, what does your mum read in general? My mum reads a lot of uh, South American magical realist writers like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Borges. 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 Uh, and uh, Milan Kundera from the Czech Republic, things like that. Is it A Thousand Years of Solitude? One Hundred Years of Solitude. I remember reading that. It's probably a bit weird. <laughs> I like when weird. When it disappears up into the sky, the mother, Pilar, whatever her name was. And your father, what does he read? Dad reads books about um, very practical topics. When, when my dad was younger, he, he loved fiction, but in recent years he's tended to read more sort of 
non-fiction and history-based books. He's kind of like me then, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think we'll get, get on to this. You, I mean, you don't read fiction anymore, do you, Simon? No, I gave up fiction. But not so long ago, because I remember you telling me you read some fiction works when you were 35, so that's only a few years ago. Oh, I would shut up. <laughs> 30-something, all right. That's interesting. So your parents certainly don't apply to that stereotype, and the people I know in my life, men and women, I, yeah, that stereotype is no longer true. Although there is a lot of cheap and tacky romance literature out there, and it's what makes the most money in the market, which is, which is why it's so difficult now for a literary author to get published. Because they can make more money just by publishing some nonsensical romance novel set in Malta. And statistics do show that it's predominantly bought by women. And books about things like crime and based on the military and so on are predominantly bought by men. Although have you noticed that even though a lot of crime books might be bought by men, Quite a lot of the best crime stories, including stories with some quite grisly murders, are written by women. Val McDermott, Agatha Christie, Ruth Rendell. Bronte. What a breath of fresh air. Come on, that's a good one for the pun jar. You can put the money in for that one. You're not going to start making me put money in for your <laughs> puns. I'm gonna... If it's a good one, yeah. Okay, so what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> That's the new title for this podcast. Do you have any library books accidentally misplaced in your collection? You mean, um, have I accidentally stolen books from the public library? Yeah. Have you teethed a book from the library and kept it? It's been, it? well, you know, living in Japan, I haven't gone to the library so much in recent years. Uh, but um, when I was a boy, I used to get a book out from the library every week. And once or twice, uh, I remember I got like this history book about the, I think it was actually about the British Empire, uh, out of the library and uh, forgot to give it back and um, got, it was lost for many years, I paid the fine and then years later digging through my stuff I found it again. Fossilised. Fossilised. <laughs> but you know we, are, we um, I think we should carry on with the puns, it makes us strong and we just do this podcast once a week. And we mainly do it for the puns. Yeah, and seven days about a pun makes one week. <laughs> so is Orwell basing this on empirical evidence? Of who's bought which books in the shop? Or is this just his opinion? I think this is his opinion, particularly when he's using words like, you know, the books you can respect are read yeah. by men. Uh, I, I, I think we can't get away from the fact that Orwell, as progressive as he was, he was a man of his time, really. Wasn't. And, and he was a wee bit misogynistic yeah. at times. So speaking as of 2021, when we're recording this, no, he's wrong. He, he's out of touch. He's out of date. He's got that one wrong. He's off the mark. But in 1936, he's obviously not right, but is there any excuse? Can we excuse him slightly? Well, you know, one of the things... I think one of the things that's changed a lot since this essay was written is that in the past people read a lot more and so it was maybe more justifiable to criticise what people were reading because don't you feel, Simon, that these days if anyone's reading anything at all you think that that's a good thing, really? 
Lewis, you and I do it. We criticise people these days, don't we, for things they do when they should be sitting down and reading a book. And I, I criticise the literature people read. I can't stand Harry Potter. I, what I can't stand is when people in their 30s go on about it. Well, they grew up with it. Read a classic. Learn something. I'm of a different opinion. I feel that as long as you're reading, as long as it's not, you know, Mein Kampf or something like that, <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. But I feel that Orwell, you can really see his tastes and you can really see his background coming out in his literary judgments. Because there's this other thing. Modern books for children are rather horrible. Harry Potter. I would sooner give a child a copy of Petronius Arbiter than Peter Pan, but even Barry seems manly and wholesome compared with some of his later imitators. That's really the old Etonian coming through, isn't it? Yeah. Saying, give, give the kids Latin classics. Oh, God, yeah. Do you remember in the movie Notting Hill, Hugh Grant works in a bookshop, doesn't he? He owns a bookshop. Or owns it. Um, and the guy walks in and laxatisically like, asks for a, what fiction does he have? And he says, well, this is a travel book shop. And Orwell mentions that, doesn't he, in his essay, how just people just seem to want to come in without having any idea about what's going on. And talk to you like you're, like this shop should contain everything that a travel book shop needs. I found a lot of lonely people came to the museum. Because like you said, it's in London, museums are free, free entry. The, the big ones, anyhow. A lot of lonely people would come in and strike up a conversation on one of the artefacts, which within seconds just became a conversation about them. Uh, just looking for people to talk to. Being around people. We've talked about this before um, down the pub, Simon, but uh, I have often said that I would rather be the author of a shelf full of bestsellers than the author of another Ulysses. You're of a differing opinion, aren't you? Yeah. I'd rather write one seminal work that influenced a generation, that became an adjective, rather than a whole series of bestsellers. Period. You'd like to be Bernard Cornwall, wouldn't you? I'd love to write the Sharp books. I'd love to have a whole... You know what? What would my uh, what would my books be about? Like a, a Scottish uh, spy in revolutionary France, ten volumes. <laughs> you should go for it. Why not? <laughs> what was Cornwall's other one he did about um, the Saxons and Vikings? I'm not sure, but he also did some American Civil War ones too. I didn't know that. That would mm. be interesting. You should go to um, speaking of bookshops. You should go to Marazen. Oh, you don't read fiction anymore, never mind. But um, if you ever start reading fiction again, go to Madison and... Well, I, I sometimes read The Telegraph. Something I liked, and I, I thought about you when I read this, where he talks about those who are stamp collectors. And on, they, they have a side business, right, in the, in the shop, where they, people can come and get things like that. So Do you think I'm one of a fish-like breed? I don't... Uh, yeah. I, um, I don't think you're a stamp but you're definitely, you've definitely got something weird being collected in your, <laughs> in your canon. I do, co I collect beer mats. That's, that's good. It's a bit more louche than stamp collecting, yeah. isn't it? 
Um, what if the BMI is stained with a ring? That's a, that's a problem because my dream is that one day when I'm settled, all my beer mats will be framed. So I don't really want rings. What did they do? No, they didn't do anything. <laughs> that's the point. They've been framed. Guilty of making people drunk. But we didn't, we didn't do it, of, Governor. It wasn't me. Guilty of supporting alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. See what I mean? Supporting under the beer. See? Very good. There Excellent. we go. That was sort of a pun. He's, um, he's got in the game. He's in. Yes, I do collect a few things, including beer mats, but I've never been a stamp collector. My father-in-law was a stamp collector when he was a young man in the Soviet Union. Would that, would the fact it was in the Soviet Union would have meant anything to that? Well, it was maybe, I've, I've never asked him about it actually, because he doesn't do it anymore. It was very much a thing of his youth. What do you think is the attraction to collecting stamps or collecting anything? these people often have their collections locked away in some vault somewhere. Speaking as someone who likes collecting things, including books and beer mats and other types of things, there is this yearning to complete something, to complete a task. I also collect, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I'm a big fan of horror fiction, ghost stories. There's a series of ghost story anthologies that were released between about 1960 and 1980 called the Fontana Book of Great Ghost Stories and I am desperate to collect all 20 of them even though I know that only you know a handful of stories in those books are classics I want to have all of them because I'm a completist and I think this is a particularly, do you think it's a particularly male thing? I mean Orwell mentions that stamp collecting seems to be a man's thing in particular. Do you think being a completist is a very, very male sort of thing? I don't know, I mean, we're living in Japan and uh, the girls here in Japan love collecting. They collect all sorts of things, I, I don't see that as a masculine thing but do you collect ghost books? Yes. So. Why do ghosts read so many books? Just go through them so quickly. <laughs> Are you, did you make that up? I, I remembered it. It's, it's not mine, but I remembered it. Oh, well, it's creative anyhow. Oh, well. Or well. <laughs> the last theme I'd like to talk about, Simon, is books and economics. There was a very poignant line in this essay. Given a good pitch and the right amount of capital, any educated person ought to be able to make a small, secure living out of a bookshop. Then later, the combines can never squeeze the small, independent bookseller out of existence. Now, he didn't foresee Amazon, did he? Or even before Amazon, Waterstones. But Amazon, yeah, which is absolutely... Next time everybody listening to this goes on to Amazon and buys himself something, just bear in mind that this company has literally destroyed the independent bookstore. Even Waterstones, I mean, Amazon, Amazon makes Waterstones look like it's run by a quaint old couple. At least you could walk around Waterstones and find a book. And touch things. And touch things, yeah. So, unfortunately, he couldn't have foreseen this. He does mention, though, that the grocer and the milkman had been squeezed. Which yeah, I remember by, Milkman. Mm, so. Even by 1936 is very prescient. And I think it was around 96 where they finally just went forever. So do you think it's another 
30 years because the bookshops are still hanging on, but only the really good ones survive now. But another 30 years, do you think they'll also just be gone? That is something that I was very concerned about because when I first read this essay when I was 15, 14, 15, I thought, yes, you're right, George Orwell, they can never get rid of the bookshop. But now I, I doubt it. Yeah. Um, and I think there will always be a certain number of people who want to go to a, a real bookshop and look at physical books. But that's going to dwindle, isn't it? And yeah. soon it's just going to be, one day it might just be, in our lifetime, it might just be Waterstones or something like Waterstones and Amazon. Well, the, the millennials, and this is not dig having a go at millennials, because they're quite an easy target, and it's not their fault. They've just been brought up in the, in the age of internet, in, in the globalised world. So they, they just don't have that attachment to small independent stores of any genre, like, such as books, that we do. So it's not their fault. They just don't have any metaphysical attachment to it. So when possibly... Our generation or the generation before us passes on. That could be when the, it goes, the bookshop dies. So our message is support your local bookshop. Finally, Simon, let's lighten the tone a bit. What are you reading? I'm reading a really good book on anti-gravity. I just can't put it down. That's but... new to me. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I'm reading a pretty dull dull book associated with the work. Well, what was it about? It's about translanguaging. Translanguaging, what's that? Translanguaging is a pedagogic, well this is about translanguaging and pedagogy, it's about how we incorporate all forms of communication. <laughs> you asked! <laughs> what are you reading, Chris? <laughs> I'm reading Dan Nurse in Paris and London. Yeah. And I tell you what, it's a page-turner. Did you find that? You've read it before. Did, did you find it was a page-turner? Absolutely love it. It's entertaining. It's not just a document. I cannot, I cannot put it down. You know, I'm working. I have to get up for well, work. I can see a gin and tonic in your hands now. I have to get up for work at seven in the morning, and I'm up there at half eleven at night reading the next chapter of Down and Out in Paris and London. Love it so much. And even though I want this podcast to be about Orwell's essays... It might be nice to discuss down and out in Paris and London. We, we have talked about maybe we should sneak a few book reviews, but yeah, um, there are essays. There are some more essays we can talk about which are relevant. We've already done one, The Common Lodging Houses. There's a few more we could dive into. The chapter I just read last night, which I really enjoyed, was all about the folklore of tramps and how they would just gather together. I don't know if you remember this, but they would just gather together and sit down and swap stories. Yeah. And Orwell records, uh, you know, like a folklorist, really, he records a ghost story about one of the spikes, one of the lodging houses that he stayed in, and he records a folk song sung by a couple of the tramps. Your background, you're a student of folklore. Mm. Do you think that's what's attracting you to those kind of themes? Yes, and reading that chapter, it put me in mind of some folklore from an archive I came across, which was uh, recordings of a man called Jimmy Macbeth who was very important in the Scottish really? folk... Yes, <laughs> Jimmy Macbeth. Um, he was very important... I in honestly the... could not invent a more Scottish name than Jimmy Macbeth. If his middle name was Iron Brew, 
That's the only way that could be a more Scottish name. <laughs> but he he was an itinerant, and he told a lot of similar stories to the ones Orwell records in Down Note in Paris and London. So I'm reading that. I'm also, you know, I occasionally dip into short stories. We didn't mention in our discussion how Orwell says that short stories don't sell. They're yeah. no longer commercial, even by the 30s. Personally, I love short stories. Most of my books are books of short stories. You see, I don't. And, and I don't for the reasons he mentions that. I don't, well, in the days I read fiction, I just didn't feel I could ever really get into the character. I need long, I need more pages to really appreciate. That's why I like Netflix and things like that, because they're all about series, and you can really get into a character, into a plot, rather than it just being done and over within an hour and a half. Do you think you'll ever go back to fiction, Simon? Yeah, definitely. When you've got more time on your hands? When I've got more time. And my, my career right now is based around doing a lot of research and reading, and I just don't have time, but... Much like working with books, uh, working in research can put you off reading. Does it ever? Well, that was Bookshop Memories, one of my personal favourites. I think you were quite keen on it as well. It's, it's one of my favourites now too. I really enjoyed it. Uh, we are orwellpod at gmail.com. Please write to us. We have received some very good emails, very good comments on the YouTube videos. Please write to us. We love to hear from you. We love to hear your ideas, your opinions. And send some questions in. We'll do a quick, we'll do a Q&A one. A Q&A would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, okay. Preferably all well-based questions. Oh, yes. Well. Uh, but we can How also, tall are we? <laughs> we can also... Uh, I'm much taller than Simon. Uh, we can also talk about... Uh, you know, you, you can ask us about our opinions of Orwell, our connections to Orwell, that, yeah. that sort of thing. So, thanks very much for listening, everyone. And as we always say, Orwell... Well,